Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Well, hey, this is Dyke Drummond at the home of The Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And my guest today is one of our coaches at the Happy MD website, Dr. Pam Pappas. And Pam is a psychiatrist in Scottsdale, but she's not an ordinary psychiatrist. <laughs> she's much more than that. So Pam, tell, tell, before we get started on the, on the topic for today, and the topic for today is going to be the battle between self-compassion and the prime directive of the patient comes first or something like that. So Pam, tell us a little bit before we get started about the special characteristics of what you practice. Well, the work that I've been through, I guess, is uh, having been burnt out in about every work environment that I've ever been in. So that's part of my call to arms on this thing. But besides being an academic psychiatrist for a lot of years and caring for medical students and residents and multiple attendings as a psychiatrist, I also branched out and grew into integrative medicine. And so the idea is that what is healing and how does that apply to psychiatry? And the funny thing was, when I was in training, psychiatrists were not really talking about healing. <laughs> the, the, where, where I learned about healing was from my surgeon colleagues. Oh, yeah, cut a hole and it's going to heal. <laughs> well, well, they were real interested in whether it would or not. Right, right. But, but the psychiatrists, well, whatever. And I thought that some of the aspects of healing that I learned with in on surgery rotations ought to apply to what was happening to us emotionally. And the other part that was unique, I guess, for me was interest in what is mental well-being? What is health? You know, because we have all the pathology stuff and pointing out what kind of personality perturbations we have. And right. so the I was- I was psychology and the positive side of psychology, psychiatry, as opposed to just disease-oriented. Well, the thing was that the residents had not ever had anybody ask them what was mental health. Like, what are we shooting for in, in working disease, with these? Right? It, well, and that's what we were supposed to be responsible for. I had attendings that said, Pam, you're a doctor. You prescribe medicine and that's what you do. And I would say, well, what about the person that's attached to getting the prescription? And I got in trouble for that. So I've always been a question asker and troublemaker. Um, that too. And so it comes naturally that I want to help with people that are experiencing burnout. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things we were talking about before we got started today was this sort of playground between, it's sort of like yin and yang. It's like patient comes first, I come first. Do I have a role? If the patient comes first, how do I turn this off? What is self-compassion? And I know you've done a bunch of work around Brene Brown's work, around vulnerability and everything. And you wanted to talk today about self-compassion. So let's do it. Just those words is enough sometimes to have professionals, especially physicians, go, ah! you know, it's you, you know, it's mushy. It's, you know, it's, is, is it going to make me lose my edge? 
<laughs> but seriously, because we work our asses off in medical school and in residency training, and we think that by driving ourselves like banshees, that that is what we, you know, how we got the success. We got the grades, we passed all the exams and did all that. So a phrase like self-compassion is scary, can be. But what it really boils down to is treating yourself with the same kindness as you might towards a good friend of yours that you have, rather than being like a nasty critic. Like if you had a buddy in your practice that had a bad patient outcome, and they come in your office and they're upset. <laughs> I'd grab them. I'd grab them and hold them and hug them and assure them it's going to be okay, right? Really? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would now. I'm a little different. Now, okay. I, I'm a little different now than I was back when I was practicing actively. <laughs> yeah. So you would have that impulse to not just empathize with them, but to actively soothe. Right. Coddle, hold. Well, even coddle is a little wonky of a word there. Of course. There. The natural thing that comes out of you is heart. Right. And wanting to connect with that person. You want to tell them it's going to be okay. Well, you don't necessarily know it's going to be okay. Maybe they're right. going to get malpracticely sued. I don't know. But the thing is that is treating them with some care and some understanding that is a natural part of you. Now, if you're the one that makes the mistake. Right. I'm going, oh, you dumbass. What the hell were you thinking? Yeah. The, myself in the head, right? The bruised forehead. Right. And so there's a big divergence. Well, and check this out. I'm thinking I'm thinking me and my testosterone addled state, because you know, if you can't see us right now, I'm a I'm a big old white guy, former 23-year rugby player, right? So the other thing that I would tend to do, just to go a little deeper, is if you tried to be soft and sweet with me, I would refuse it. Because if I was actually doing a good job, I wouldn't need your empathy. I would just yeah. move on to the same patient. Well, to the and, next that, patient, and that, okay, that's beautiful that you should raise that because that actually shows a very common misconception that we have about self-compassion. And that is that it's only kind of soothing and nurturing and soft. But there is also a young form of self-compassion in that in order for you to know that something's gone awry or something is upsetting you or causing you suffering. You can't be numb to that. Right. And, and in order for you to do something about it, you have to first go, oh God, this, uh -oh. <laughs> this hurts. If you never take that stance, then you can never do the next part, which is, well, I really, I'm going to look for a different job or I'm going to make sure that my team is in better communication so that whatever untoward event wouldn't happen quite so much in the future. Right. And sometimes, but you have to, sometimes you have to be very firm about that. Or somebody's asking you to be on call four extra times next week. And you also have a parent that's sick somewhere. And your plan was to go be available to that parent. If you don't have firm compassion for yourself, then you're going to go, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. Extra admissions. They're small. I'll take some more. So violate my self-compassion, my self-care boundaries. Yeah. And be exactly. able to defend those. See, the challenge that I see for most doctors is that that's all beat out of us in residency and medical school. I mean, it, basically what we have is as we go in and we work our faces off and our time off is simply a, a recovery. It's sleeping or drinking or uh, whatever it well, is. Be, yeah, being, being numb, numbing out. Right. You know? 
recovering and which yes that is something that we need to do we do need to rest we do need to eat we do need to connect with someone that means something to us and that we mean something to and, um, and, and in residency they take away the possibility of boundaries now you and i were both trained in an era before work hour restrictions i think it may be different now right but i i wonder there must be quite a tension between self-compassion and self-care boundaries and the requirements of the program when you're in training. But now if we're talking to somebody, if somebody's listening here that's out in their own practice, you have a new level of freedom to set these boundaries for yourself. Well, some of the people that have the worst bosses that I know are in solo practice. Because <laughs> then, <laughs> then the crazy one's looking at you from the mirror every morning. <laughs> that's right. Oh, you got, you know. But the thing is, the way you treat yourself either as a self-ally or a self-bastard or self-critic, you know, whatever, really matters. And it changes how you approach your day. It changes how you approach the patients, your team, your spouse, your kids. Dog. Sure, you could kick the dog. Goat. Poor little goat. Well, somebody got your goat back yes. there. You know? <laughs> yeah. You so, got that in, didn't you? <laughs> I had to. But the thing is that we forget that we're humans and human beings, not human doings. Of and, course, in medical school, we're supposed to be human doings and never need a rest. And the thing is having also some recognition of common humanity rather than being isolated. And the only one that, this, that has ever had this happen, that bad patient outcome or something, which they're not. And um, if I lose track of my humanity, I lose the only common ground I can have with each and every one of my patients. Because we may be very different genetically, culturally, language, experience, personality, but we all are human. And if I can't care for myself in a way that keeps me in touch with my humanity, I lose that common ground. And the patients can tell too, right? Oh, yeah. Here comes well, the automaton. <laughs> you know that I was in the hospital not long ago. and um, Right. You were really in the hospital. I was, yeah. But the thing is, what I really could notice was how different it was when someone had the, the bandwidth or, or the energy to look me in the eye and listen to what it was that I had to say. And also the ones that were kind of eyes forward, mind blank, zombies have taken over because they were just so freaking tired. Well, they were in the whirlwind and the whirlwind was winning at that point in time. Right? And the point is that I thought I knew burnout before I ended up on the other receiving end of it. And boy, did that experience teach me a ton. The third part of this mindful self-compassion is mindfulness where you have to first know that you're struggling. You have to have clear-eyed looking at what you're experiencing. Who's there? Who's on your side? Who's screaming at you? What are you having happen in your body when all this is going on? So it's a very much felt experience that you're aware of. You're not drunk, <laughs> you know, like you're talking about. And at the same time, you want to not be carried away into the dramatic story about it. Oh, there's nobody that will ever understand or, you know, and all those people, they're a bunch of pricks and we're all going to working for the man. And it's like some of the Facebook conversations that I see. It's the victim mentality, right? Three ways, you know, you're playing the victim, blame, justify, and complain. Yeah. So, and, so hang on a second, Pam. You said there were three things that we needed to know. Lay those out for us. Bang, bang, bang. Put them in. Well, there. 
mindful self-compassion involves self-kindness rather than self-judgment. Got it. Common humanity versus isolation. And then the third one is mindfulness versus over-identification. Awareness of what's going on from an observer self rather than becoming the victim and swimming in yeah. the man. Well, you, but you have to experience it. So you're participating, you're right. aware of it, but then you're not letting yourself get carried away. Right. So that mindful self-compassion actually makes you clearer about what is happening rather than over-nurturing or, oh, you poor baby. <laughs> That's what people are worried about. This right. Get away from me. Yeah, <laughs> if I, if I needed that, I'd ask for it. And I wouldn't ask for it. So, I wouldn't want it either. <laughs> so one of the things that I teach that seems to make a big difference about this mindfulness, being aware of what you're experiencing, but not becoming over-identified with it, not sliding into mm-hmm. the victim mode, is the concept of naming your emotion and not becoming it. Well, that goes right along with the neuroscience, actually, because say when we're extremely fearful and our amygdalas are running with us, if you can step outside that whirlwind in some way and kind of look at your experience and say, oh, that's, this is a fear right now, or it's, I'm panicking, or my heart rate's going fast. Right, you've but, been but, hijacked, and now you're stepping out to see it. See, once you name it, you're bringing in the whole frontal cortex rather okay. than just the amygdala. Okay. The frontal cortex could be freaking offline. But when you use it like that, by naming the emotion or the experience, it's like, oh, I'm more than this thing that's got me by the you-know-whats. Nice. Short and curlies is what we usually say in England. So it's interesting that the situation in which I do the most coaching about name your emotions, don't become them, is when I'm talking to doctors about how they shouldn't get super angry in front of their boss. <laughs> when they're noticing that could, that hypocrisy. Could be <laughs> well, except in that situation, they probably are having a lot of anger. Yeah. yeah. And then different personality styles will be more prone to certain tweaks than others. You know, that's another part of what I do. But I think that the self-compassion can really do a lot for our demeanor. And it isn't like self-compassion or compassion for myself versus the patient. Right. Because if I can chill myself a little bit and let myself be myself with myself, then I can hear a lot more of what that patient's trying to tell me than I could otherwise. Yeah, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like if I give some compassion to me, there's less for others. Well, that's I think that's probably what people are afraid of, or that it's going to be a situation like that, or, or it's, you're going to be selfish if you do that. But you think about, you know, if you're trying to guard from being blamed and you think that the patient is mad at you about something, I mean, how how well are you going to be able to listen to that patient actually tell you something that isn't working in your therapeutic regimen that you have devised? And so if you really want to be able to become a an, an open listener and and actually do your job a heck of a lot better with your patients, you're going to practice some self-compassion or learn or learn about it. And even though it probably gives you the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it, but maybe there's something to this. And there's actual research that at another time I could tell about, but it's not just pulled out of the air. There's a science around it. Yeah, you're all over the neuroanatomy there for a moment. But it's, well, we both got that big nerve in the head. Right. And it does things. Right. <laughs> you know? Wow. 
I'm talking to a psychiatrist today. Yeah, man. <laughs> I sort of see it too is that there's an emotional range that's beaten out of us in our training, an emotional a pendulum like of intensity of emotions that we can feel or recognize without numbing or overloading or frying our circuits. As we notice our own emotions, our own self-awareness, our own mindfulness, we can begin to become more emotionally intelligent with our family, with our primary relationships, with our patients. It increases our ability to recognize emotions in their native state and maybe develop new if I'm feeling tired or I'm feeling neglected or I'm feeling sad, I can start taking care of myself rather than stuffing those things like I had to during residency because there just wasn't place for it. Well, the, the word for that probably compartmentalization. There you go. I call it sticking it on the back burner or the back closet shelf and thinking, okay, I'm going to deal with this pile later. Right now, I've got a ton of people in front of me and they're all wanting something now. And the thing is that sometimes you never get back to whatever was in the closet. Right. It comes out and grabs you. Right. Hi, Jack. Yeah, when you least expect it. So it pays to spend a little bit of time learning about some of this and to be able to offer it to some of your colleagues on the team. Well, and I would also say that this is one of those situations where being able to reflect on what's in your emotional back burners to be able to reflect on your experience sometimes takes that regular rhythm of stepping out of the whirlwind. So I think you journal. I know that I journal a lot. Journaling is one way to do it. There are lots more. But if we just go to work and come home and recover and go to work again and have no reflective time, no time outside the whirlwind to think about the experience of what we're going through in our lives... That's where things start to get kind of weird. It's funny. I sometimes don't know what I'm feeling until I write it. Nice. I'm, sh I'm sure that that's true for me, too. It's like, oh, my gosh, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah, and maybe it's a blog post, but you go, oh, I, here's that experience. That's one that came out of the closet from the back shelf, and that was like 10 years ago. And then one of the things I sometimes do is I write with that part that is feeling the emotion. Hey, angry guy, what's up? have a conversation back and forth, mm -hmm. active imagination. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's all kinds of ways to do this, but you have to have some care for yourself the way you would for a friend right. and not be, you know, I guess it's a nice way of saying, don't be an asshole. Right. <laughs> to anybody, including yourself. Yes. Okay. There's the lesson for the day. Don't be an asshole to yourself. Well, and I'm thinking too, when you said if somebody came in and they had had a bad outcome and I was feeling bad for them, then I'd grab them, hold them, hug them. I guess at this stage in my life, you know, I'm 62, old white guy. I'm thinking about a little child who stubbed their toe. It's like, come here, let me hold you. I'll make it better. <laughs> but that's kind of like a coddling. Yes. And I hear you, but that's not how we want to be treated. Not always. Well, even as a friend, I, I would feel kind of infantilized by that. I mean, I would want you to hear me and to care. Sure. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that part, I would probably give you a three-finger salute. Right. Well, and that, that's my urge, right, to have you feel comforted. That's the way I describe it. But yeah. I, guarantee, I guarantee you in the moment, I wouldn't behave that way. <laughs> well, what you described was exactly what um, doctors fear about the, oh, what, because what they think self-compassion is versus what it actually is. Right. And so that's really an important distinction. And so I'm glad that you, you brought that up.
Well, and it's like as a coach, you and I are both coaches and we're listening to doctors tell us these stories about some of the terrible things that they have to go through. And it's like, I just want to reach through the phone and hold them, right? Mm -hmm. The urge is there. The desire is there. You can't do that. You aren't going to do that. But it's like, wow, there is just some situations that we get into as light workers that are just incredibly painful. And the reflex that someone else might have to take some time off and to take care of themselves and, and to do something nice for themselves. We have that, that is not on our front burner when it comes to how we deal with this. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the notion of having a soft front and a strong back mm -hmm. and being willing to do what you need to do to tend your resources because they're precious. They are. You can't give what you ain't got. You got to turn the patient comes first off sometime and take care of yourself and What's, what was our phrase again? Don't be an asshole to yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really simplified. Well, it, but then if you are not an asshole to yourself, it's less likely you're going to be it to anybody else either. Nice. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's an opening conversation with Dr. Pam Pappas, who's one of our coaches at thehappymd.com. Now, just a quick note about coaching. What is that? Coaching takes place over the phone or on Zoom. Our first call with all the coaches is free. It's called the discovery session. And if you go to the website, thehappymd.com and hit the coaching tab, You'll see all the bios of Dr. Pappas, Pam, and everybody else that's in our coaching group. Uh, we meet a couple times a month just to share best practices. And if you want, you can push Pam's button and schedule a discovery session with her. Thanks, Pam. Well, thank you. I've had a good time with you. Let's do it again. I want to hear all the neuroscience of this stuff. Yeah, well, we'll have to get back in the whirlwind and come out of it another time. Right on. <laughs>